You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Aaron Hurst, globally recognized thought leader, author of The Purpose Economy, and CEO and co-founder of Imperative. Aaron is the foremost expert on the science of purpose and fulfillment at work. At Imperative, with his team, Aaron helps many global brands build strong cultures through their peer coaching platform that uses the power of peers to support each other over time to become increasingly effective and fulfilled. The science-backed platform combines the effectiveness of coaching with the impact of building trusted peer networks that are proven to build resilient and high-performing cultures. Previously, as the founder of the Taproot Foundation, Aaron also catalyzed the $15 billion pro bono service market. He has written for or been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, World Economic Forum, Fast Company, MIT Sloan Management Review, and was named a LinkedIn influencer. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Aaron discuss imperatives tech and the use of AI and data and analytics to help people build positive, consistent, and vulnerable relationships across different teams, myths about purpose, a process to find your purpose and how you're contributing to the world, how to run exercise in the workplace that align with your purpose at work, and why it's the CEO's job to make sure friendships are built in their business and how to drive those relationships. Before diving into today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out our Scaling Culture Masterclass, the eight-module playbook on how to build and sustain a resilient, high-performing team, covering all things culture, from creating and activating core values and culture-driven screening and onboarding to building relationships, change management, and operating as a team. To learn more or purchase the masterclass, please go to scalingculture.org. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today with me all the way from Seattle, I've got Aaron Hurst, President and CEO of Imperative. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. Excited for the conversation. Yeah, me too. And and we just chatted quickly that you've got some roots here in old Halifax, Nova Scotia. Spent some time. Yeah, you're making me want to go back. And actually, our nanny is from Halifax as well out here in Seattle. So um, we reminisce every once in a while. But um, yeah, you're bringing back a lot of memories. Well, so let's get into it, Aaron. So so look, um, tell me, the, you know, we've introduced you already, but to tell me the work you do at Imperative and how that connects to culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, just as a background, I've been doing work around purpose in the workplace for about 20 years um, now, and Imperative is sort of my current venture around that. And what we found is that cultures exist basically between the relationships between people. And that what's happened during the pandemic, what's happened with virtual work, is that those relationships have atrophied and people don't have connection in the workplace. Um, and without that connection, the, the culture becomes very thin and very hollow. And uh, what we do at Imperative is we build uh, lasting, meaningful relationships at scale inside a company um, by actually enabling peers to act as coaches for each other. We figured out basically how to take coaching, which has traditionally been a profession. We've actually figured out how to take the methodology and build that into AI so that two people can basically do coaching for each other without any training or background. Um, so it enables that coaching culture to take hold and enables relationships to take hold. And it just builds a culture of ownership because people start to actually own their own experience. But doesn't have to be a, like, I appreciate the technology piece mm -hmm. on top of it, but doesn't there have to be even the first step of, of trust and relationships before even coaching? What's the first step before you could even, you know, to deepen a relationship and to get to coaching, which, you know, you kind of have to, yep. in some cases, my experience is, I need to, to build trust with you and, and get to a place where you're comfortable to allow me to coach, right? And so what, what, you know, what's the first step? How do you build the foundation, the building blocks of that? 
Well, so the great question. I love that you asked that. So um, our whole platform is built off of my research around purpose. So what, what happens, Ram, when someone joins our technology platform is we actually determine their purpose psychologically. So it's a 30-question assessment, determines their psychological purpose. In that process, first of all, they feel seen often for the first time in their career. Um, and it gives them tremendous trust in the platform that this platform actually gets who you are, not as a Swiss army knife of skills, um, but actually as a human being and the kind of impact you want to make um, through your work. We then match two people where we know they have similar purpose. So we actually know psychologically they have a lot in common. And then using Arthur Aronson's methodology of accelerating love between strangers, we're actually able to ask questions of each other in a uh, back and forth. Um, in a way in which it accelerates that trust between two people in that very first conversation. So we've actually designed this whole thing using science to basically build that trust within the very first um, interaction between two people. Um, and I can drill down on a lot of the details of that, but I think that really is the secret sauce to what we've done is we've scaled trust um, and we've accelerated trust within a corporation for the first time. So let me play that back to you. I answer yeah. questions. So therefore you know what questions to ask me to to connect to me, have a stronger connection or my trust, or did I get that wrong? Uh, that, that partially. So one is that you and I have a similar purpose as people who are paired. So our answers to questions are going to be um, similar. We're going to be able to relate to each other very quickly with sort of like, oh my God, me too moments consistently throughout the interaction. So that's sort of number one. The prompts that we have in the conversations I think one of the most important things to understand is that both people answer the prompt. So it's not like one person's the coach and one's the coachee. Um, we both go through the process of answering each question. And the questions are designed to psychologically get you to disclose more and more and to become more and more comfortable with your peer. And by having you and I both answer the same question, um, we're revealing at the same time, instead of having one person sort of reveal, 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 and then the other one, by both sort of taking those steps together, um, it actually enables us to feel more comfortable as we start to see the other person as a human being and we let go of a lot of our fear. So I'm going to assume that you, you know, you really separated training and coaching because in this, in this, in, in, in this format, um, someone could, I could be in HR, but you could be in accounting, but because our purposes right. are unique, right? right. We can that's then right. get into this back and forth, correct? Yep, absolutely. And that's a big part of why I think we make, are making a big impact on cultures is that we're helping people find connection in other departments, totally different functions. They may sort of at the surface level look like they have nothing to learn from each other. Um, but there's a really fundamental difference between coaching and say mentoring or training. So mentoring and training tends to be about knowledge transfer. Um, I know something about podcasts that I'm going to give to Ron to make him a better you know, podcast host. Um, whereas coaching is you and I are both you know, trying to you know, show up as our best selves. And the goal of it is to help the other person solve their own problems. I'm not giving you answers. What I'm giving you are the questions, the support, um, the accountability for you to actually solve your own problems. And that's really what separates a coach from a mentor or a teacher. Um, and what the research shows is that coaching is way more effective because you're getting to the answers yourself. You're feeling ownership of them. Um, and that's enabling you to get there. It doesn't work for some things like learning how to use a spreadsheet. Um, that's much more of a taught or mentoring need. But when it comes to like how to show up as a human being, how to lead, how to manage, those are things that are best developed through coaching. You know, what I found from my, um, my own experience and interesting writing um, the book, I have a chapter on coaching. And yep. before writing the book, I thought I was a good coach. And then <laughs> as I 
as I figured out what coaching really was, I thought, I'm not a good coach. I'm a motivator problem solver. I'm not a good coach. And are you, do you, did the data show that entrepreneurs and maybe folks with ADHD like me um, don't have, kind of lack the patience and we just jump, we just want to help and solve or, or like what, you know, what attributes make someone very good because find that my purpose connects with yours, but I'd argue that I'd still might not be good at this process. How do I fit into that? How do you, how do you, how does the process allow anybody, no matter the personality to maybe be a good coach? I think because we're providing the prompts and we're modeling it. Um, that's what enables people to actually be a good coach. And the other thing is we force people to take notes for each other. So if I'm talking, you're taking notes for me, which forces you to stop thinking about what smart thing to say and actually just listen to what I'm saying. Um, to your broader question, I, we have a societal problem where we um, tell people that giving advice is the way to show your worth. Um, we see that like in a classroom setting when you're young, of like who has the answer, who has the solution versus helping someone else get there. Um, especially for white men, it's very strongly ingrained that like that's how we show value um, in the world is by mansplaining things, by giving advice, by being the expert. Um, women tend to be a little bit more savvy on this front. And you'll see this a lot in classic uh, male-female relationships where um, often a man will be giving advice when their partner is um, having a problem, where all that partner really wants is just to be heard. Um, and I think that plays out in the workplace as well. We tend to solve instead of actually just realizing someone just needs to be, be heard and have space to process. Well, you know, I, I agree. And I would summarize this with, um, with this is it takes a long time for someone to, to, to move from being interesting to interested. Yep. And that takes a long time. And that's not an easy, it, it's not just a light switch either because, you know, and, and, and look, I get a bit of dopamine by being like, oh, oh I, I, I know how to solve this. I know how to solve this. I mean, it's, a, it's in my DNA. So that's interesting. So I like what you say, the process itself and writing things down, I think is, is quite helpful. And so this is done, I don't know much about the technology. Walk me through, what, how is that done? If you and I were to take this, what's it look like? Yeah, no, absolutely. And one just quick thing on the last question. It's actually been found that, People who give advice get way more out of it than the person receiving the advice consistently, um, which is why it's so dysfunctional because um, we like to feel like we're helping and that we're smart. Um, so it's interesting how the research backs that up. Um, yeah, so in terms of the experience, so the way it would work is um, we would be in the imperative platform on video, um, which is embedded in the platform. Um, and you know, we'd be on the left, on the right, you would actually have the questions emerging um, and then a box to be typing in the person's response with at different times tips or insights popping up to help move the conversation along. So we would do that um, for about four questions back and forth. Um, and then at the end, there would be an interface that says, okay, you know, now that we've been talking, Ron, like, what are you going to do about it? Um, and it's a specific uh, set of questions to help you identify what it is that you want to do and how you're going to measure if that's successful. Um, and then at the end, we do the most important thing, which is schedule our next conversation. Um, so we're actually in the platform helping to make sure there's that next conversation by facilitating that scheduling process. I always think of, of great coaches that I've used and, and as I've gone through the process, and, and I always think that coaching is a very deep place. As you ask more questions, you finally get to the core issue, right? But I don't know. I'll go back to myself. I don't know if, if I'm... I find that challenging sometimes where someone who's a better coach really pushes. They don't stop the questions there. They keep going. How, how would someone who follows this or is this guided to the AI get to the root of the problem? Yep. So, I mean, just like with coaches, you don't always get to the root of the problem. I think that's the aspiration. We do it in a couple of ways. One is 
we take people down a journey where they're just digging deeper and deeper each way. And then we're always suggesting follow-up questions to mirror that same process you described of generally with this question, these are the areas you need to push on to get them to go deeper. And then perhaps most importantly, we embed insights about their purpose into the experience. So we find a lot of the time is, I'll just give you an example. If I asked you like, what kind of impact do you like to make at work? You, you, you know, you have something to say, but you're sort of like not sure how to answer that. We then say people with your profile tend to want to make this type of impact. And all of a sudden like, oh yeah, like last week I did that and that was amazing and this and that. So we're actually helping them sort of drill down to that deeper place because we already have predictive analytics on their psychology um, from their profile. So that enables us to basically accelerate that. Um, so we're able to know things about their biases, what's gonna motivate them, um, how they like to measure their goals. Like we know all these things about them so we can actually help them connect back to their core. So Aaron, I'm curious, why do you care about this? What in your <laughs> journey made you say, this is really important to me? Um, I mean, it goes really pretty far back. My grandfather was the architect of the, the Peace Corps here in the U.S. and just really strongly believed in the idea of connecting people across culture through shared purpose and by spending enough time with them to actually get to know them and to have empathy. Um, and that's really been the theme, the theme in my work. So, um, you know, my last organization was called the Taproot Foundation. It was a, a nonprofit I started right after 9-11 to help business professionals do pro bono work. So just like you and I know lawyers do pro bono work, um, it turns out nonprofits need marketing, they need tech, they need HR, they need finance help, not just legal help. So built a national nonprofit around pro bono work, um, then worked at the White House to build a $15 billion a year marketplace for companies doing pro bono work. And then with BMW created affiliates um, in 30 countries around the globe around this idea of, um, using your skills to connect in the nonprofit sector to build true understanding between the sectors. So that was sort of my last major venture. And then I realized coming out of that work, two things. One is people were doing volunteering because their work was not fulfilling. And I realized we were actually in the supplement business um, when the problem was people's entree wasn't healthy and that we actually needed to fix the entree, which is that work was broken. Um, so that was sort of one aha moment. I think the second one is my uncle um, coined the term information economy as a um, PhD student at Stanford back in the 70s. And it occurred to me as I was watching trends with all of our corporate partners and countries around the world that um, we were entering a new economic era where people's quest for meaning in their lives was going to change their consumer behavior and their behavior in the workplace. And that it was going to fundamentally open up new areas of innovation, um, and it's going to create a new standard for what work needed to be. So I published a book um, building off my uncle's work called The Purpose Economy and really became the leading advocate for purpose in the workplace and showing the economic benefits of purpose, not just seeing it as sort of traditional, sort of loose loose and more, uh, I would say, like, um, uh, I'd say consulting-oriented um, framework, actually building data science around it and helping to really build the case. And then, you know, what we're doing today came out of years of research with leading academic institutions and companies like LinkedIn and PwC of trying to figure out what is it that people do who are fulfilled at work that others don't do. Um, in social science, they call them positive deviants, people who deviate from the norm but get positive results. Versus what, what, are some, what are some of those things? Can you? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly So number one, they know what their purpose is. People who know what fulfills them are way more likely to be fulfilled. And the reality is most people have no clue what their purpose is. So it's no wonder they never get to it because they don't know what they're looking for. Um, and not only do they not know it, they often have a the wrong idea of like what it even looked like to know what it is. 
Yep. But Aaron, without the help of AI, and I feel like I know my purpose, and I think it took me a long time to get there, and I feel connected to it. Awesome. What? How do people figure it out? What's if you were to guide someone that is just like I don't I have no I have no clue why I'm here. Yep. How do you guide them? I don't have we don't have AI yeah, in front yeah. of us. Absolutely. So um, the first thing is you have to let go of some myths about it because what people tend to anchor toward these myths that then prevent them from finding it. First and foremost is the myth that purpose is about a cause or a profession. I need to figure out what my cause is. I need to figure out like what my profession needs to be. And those are actually not the things that um, define a purpose. We've found people in every profession who are fulfilled and unfulfilled. The majority of people in the nonprofit sector, majority of people in education, healthcare are unfulfilled. These are not the answer to purpose. So you got to let go of that that sense. You also have to let go of the sense that it comes to you like a revelation with like a lightning bolt of like, boom, here is my purpose. Because um, a lot of people are just sitting around waiting for that moment to happen to them. And you also have to let go of the myth that you need a certain amount of economic means to actually have a purpose or care about a purpose. We've seen people around the world who are you know, struggling to survive, but who still find tremendous purpose in their work. Um, and it's, it's really a myth that it's only about like getting to a point where you have economic means before this matters. So we found until people can let go of those three myths, it's hard for them to, to find purpose. So with those behind us, the most important thing you can do people listening right now um, over the next month is to take a, take a, you know, can be digital or, or offline, create a journal. And every day, just write down what were the moments today where I was energized? What were the moments today? Even if it was just five minutes out of your day, what was it that like actually made you feel like your work mattered? Little things. It could have been like, you know, I held open the door for somebody. I made someone smile, like little things like that. Or I mean, I solved a certain kind of problem where I was recognized for X. But if you do that every day over about a month or so, and then take a step back and look at the patterns that emerge about what was it that made it a good day? What was it that energized me? You start to see the role um, and the moments that actually are those purposeful moments for you. And you can start to extrapolate from that. What is it that actually makes me fulfilled at work? It's funny when you were going through kind of the myths uh, yeah. and, and the framework, I guess, I, I, I thought you were going to say the purpose should be, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know if there's any rules to this, but it should be outward facing, you know, so you help someone do something or, you know, versus my purpose is to eat healthy food. You know, this is, is, is that more common that we're not seeing purposes that are their, their internal base? They tend to be, it's an interesting frame that you're using for that. Um, they tend to be about um, how you show up in the world and how you want to, I come out of a Jewish tradition originally, and there's this idea of like repair the world. Um, this idea that we all you know, have a purpose around at some level repairing the world. And that um, then it's often in very small ways, but it is a statement of like how you are contributing to the world. And it, it ties to three things. Like what is the level of impact you wanna make? Um, it ties to your values and how you see the world needing to change. And then it ties to how you personally tend to solve problems, which is basically your superpower, if you will. And those three things really combine to create that definition um, of purpose that you typically see manifest in a purpose statement that you maybe would develop with a coach. Um, there are people for whom, you know, a lot of that is an internal journey, um, sort of getting to your point. Um, but typically the, the purpose that's sustained and is motivating is something that has to do with how you're adding value in the world. Well, it's funny. I, uh, and I heard you say earlier that it is typically not associated to your work. And 
I was reflecting on that. And I've seen people that I don't think have had a very deep thought process around what their purpose are. And they've just said, my purpose is to do this thing. I'm a stockbroker. And then if that tap turns off, I've seen people go through very deep depression, very deep, like, oh my goodness, my life's over. Yep. No, that's exactly right. That's why I say good purpose should enable you to have that purpose as a CEO, as the center for the New York Knicks, um, or as a plumber. And if you're- you it's got to like, transfer to any aspect of your life. That purpose, if you get it right, it doesn't live in this one box. It goes to all aspects of your life, how you interact with your children, your neighbor, your CEO, plumber. Love that. Yeah, it has to be able to pass that test. Because what happens right now in our society is we're dependent on these ideas of professions. And actually, if you look at the trajectory of AI, the things that are going to be um, actually replaced with AI are the professions, because those are the areas where we've got a repeatable process um, that delivers consistent outcomes. And we're going to start seeing a lot of these professions that sort of start to die off. And if people tie their identity to them, like they're in for like a very rude awakening. Whereas if you can tie your identity to who you are at a deeper level, that actually enables you to be resilient and to have a better career. So Aaron, let's go to this. Okay. We've done an exercise and journaled for a month and and look for things that sounds like we, was it a month or a week you said? Yeah, I mean, the more you can do, the better. All right, fine. And you're looking for, you know, some, some common energy. What I kind of, how I took it is some common pieces of um, data points that gave you energy, made you feel good. And then you'd look at that and say, okay, what, what was happening during, how was I feeling? What was going on? What was right. And so, so say you get to a place where you figure it out. And I know, um, you know, through imperative, the AI does this, but for those listening, how do you connect purpose at work without the AI? So, so we meet each other at the workplace. How do I try to, how do we try to connect or as leaders, how do we run an exercise with our team to, to, to do that uh, in a more, I'm not going to call it simple format, but um, without technology. Yeah. I mean, I think it's looking at, it's, it is taking those trends that you see um, in terms of what, um, what moves you and starting to do more of those things and less of the other, the things that don't create energy. And one great way to do this with your team um, for those of you that are you know, listening that have a team is to actually do this as a team. And at the end of 30 days, do a small retreat and have everybody share the things that are energizing, the things that are de-energizing. And what you find happens is that often the things people find de-energizing, someone else finds energizing. And what you can actually do is start to redefine roles and swap parts of your jobs to actually optimize for the things that are meaningful to you. Because a lot of people assume the things you don't like, no one else likes. Um, but that's often not the case. So one of the things that's really I've seen to be effective on a small scale is just sort of that that team job crafting. Um, we're actually sharing this information um, as a group, and then you start to support each other and like, oh, I found a project that sits with what really you find fulfilling, or oh, I see you're doing something I heard you say you don't want to do. I'm happy to help you with that. Uh, that that's helpful because I I didn't I didn't understand it to be that I when, when you originally said I thought okay if I want to you know. Um, help people get ahead in life. And, and I'm looking for someone else at work that wants to help people get ahead in life. That's not actually what you're saying, you, you, right? I mean, what you're talking about, interesting enough, we, we call that task mapping is, is yeah, that exact same thing. What gives, drains, energies, reshuffle things. It, it creates, but I call that work alignment. But you're saying that that is connected to tying purpose to each other. And maybe I'm missing something. Purpose out of this romanticized sense of like, my purpose is to solve climate change. And you bring it yeah. down to... My purpose is to help people by challenging them and helping them, um, you know, uncover insights about themselves, right? Then you can start to do that task mapping as you're calling it. 
um, as a team and as an individual to start to have more and more of your job do that. And you can start to do things like informational interviews where you go and meet someone in a different profession and say, I like doing these things. Like, do you, do people do that in your profession? And you might find jobs that you thought would be terrible would actually be great jobs for you because you were looking at it at a superficial level instead of just knowing what types of tasks, what types of interactions um, move you and make you fulfilled. Mm, interesting. So back, back to your platform, is it just two people coach each other? Does one person coach seven people? And I want to cover that. And I was also curious on the, from your perspective, what are some of the impacts you've seen? Yeah. Yeah. So it's one-on-one. So two people connect, they meet for an hour every two weeks for a quarter. So roughly about five sessions. And then every quarter they switch and they both get new partners. So over the course of a year, they have up to four partners that they're working with, which is what helps to build that um, those changes in the network in the organization. So you're starting to actually um, build these support ecosystems and cross-threading the culture um, in the organization at scale, um, as you see more and more people do that. Um, and because it's always about basically that, I mean, to use your language, it's like that task alignment. Most of the conversations are basically task alignment and cognitive alignment. So it's just a way for people to continuously work on their own employee experience, their own career with the support of people who understand them and support them. Um, in terms of successes, I mean, there's there's a range of successes depending on what flavor inspires you. Um, one success that I loved was actually uh, GSK, the pharmaceutical company who's a customer of ours. They had an employee in India and one in Pakistan that were matched. And they shared later on, that neither one of them wanted to talk to each other because of the historic tensions between their countries. But we were like, just have a conversation. And they said after the first conversation, they warmed up. Second one, they were laughing. And by the final one, they actually found um, ways to collaborate, even though they were in totally different departments and countries within the company. So to me, that gives me hope, not just for culture, but actually for our, you know, our, our species, <laughs> that we can actually, through purpose and conversation, get groups that are not understanding each other to actually begin to understand each other. Well, so isn't that, that a, yeah, yeah, that's a key headline today, right? I mean, think how divisive the world is on politics, religion, yep. um, COVID, I mean, you name it. It sounds like this is very timely to get people to finally start. It, well, and I guess it, it systemizes. How okay. can I listen to you versus just mansplaining what I think and my opinions? Um, and it, it seems to create a process around that, correct? Yeah, and it's, it's a process around storytelling and sharing real experience. So it's not, what did you hear on your you know Facebook feed? And what did I hear on my Facebook feed? It's actually like, finding that shared humanity and that we all have the same struggles. We all have the same things we want and love. I mean, it's all the cliches, but it's getting that noise out of the system and actually enabling human beings to connect. Because once you do that, it's very hard um, to actually hate somebody um, once you've sort of seen them up close like that. Right. And and what's been speed bumps on integrating something like that? It's just time. You're just competing with time. Or is it belief? Hey, we first, you need to believe that this is going to work and then you have to commit time. Time is definitely a variable, although we found from most people, they say it's a, a time multiplier because during those sessions, they're re-energizing. So they're like getting gas in their tank, but they're also finding that it's enabling them to realize the things they should work on that matter versus those that don't. So they end up being able to prioritize their work. So it's been in general, just like coaching is like, it's a, it's a time multiplier. Um, I think the tension that we've seen is just that people just don't know this is possible. Right. Um, um, so it's right, just the beliefs, right? And unknown. Yeah, it's unknown because no one's ever done this before. There's never been technology to do this before. So it's just building that awareness. And then you've got a lot of the population that has become very closed off, um, has not had real relationships in a very long time. 
And for them, it's just getting into that first conversation when they realize like, oh, I can do this. Because a lot of people up front sort of have these hesitations. And one of my favorite stories is out of a, a large tech company. And one of the senior engineers came to the person leading the program um, sort of on the side and said, I'm kind of nervous. Like I know this involves reflection and I've heard of reflection, but I don't think I've ever done reflection. I don't really understand what it is. And they were like, just try it. Um, you fast forward a month, like not only had they done it and loved it, but they brought their whole team into the process. Um, it's just getting people over that hump of these things that sound scary if you haven't done them. But when you actually realize how simple they are, um, it opens up like a whole new sort of set of opportunities to you. That's really interesting. And so what else, Aaron, what, what, what else is there a buckle onto this or what else are you guys seeing that's, that seems to be important and something we haven't covered as far as you know, when it comes to purpose connections and go ahead. Well, I was just trying to simplify a lot of this stuff and get over some of these big um, misunderstandings. So one of the biggest ones, if you don't have friends in the workplace in your company, you're going to have retention problems, innovation problems, uh, inclusion problems. You need friends in the workplace to be successful. So you sort of assume that that's true. The second thing so, is- Sorry, I just, I just wanted, uh, want you to unpack that. Can you break down friends? What do you mean by friends? Is that someone just you get along with, someone you have a beer with? Just for the listeners, what, what do you mean by friends? The way we define it using science is that a friend is someone where you have a positive, consistent, and vulnerable relationship. Love that. See, that's very different than I think when you hear the word friend, a positive, consistent, and vulnerable relationship. Got it. Keep going. And vulnerable doesn't mean that you're like dropping your pants. It's like just the fact that you're a human and you're honest. Yeah. Um, and positive doesn't mean you don't gripe. It's that you both help each other get to the positive place. So it's not just a, like a downward spiral. So people often misunderstand positive that way. Um, so we need those kinds of relationships to have well-being, inclusion, um, retention, dot, dot, dot. I think the, and I think companies are largely getting that now, especially with COVID, because they've seen what happens when they don't have that. Um, the thing that most CEOs don't get is that most people cannot build friends on their own. That actually, when you ask people like, you know, do you feel like you know who to build, make friends with? Do you feel comfortable? Do you know how to build a friend? Do you know how to sustain a friendship? Most people actually don't have those skills anymore and they don't have the infrastructure and permission for them inside a company. Um, why, and why, why do you think that? Why do you think we lost the, and I, I was, I was just having this vision of when you said that, of you know, you take your kids to the playground, the kids meet some other parents' kids, and then it's awkward. You just kind of don't really make eye contact with the other dad or whoever you're there with. You don't really talk to them. It feels like that. Where, how did we lose this? I, I think there's a lot of pieces to it, and there's not like one answer. I think a big part of it is like we've built a culture that operates a lot out of fear, and therefore we're like scared to bother people. We're scared of saying the wrong thing. We're scared of being rejected. There's a lot of fear that gets built into our system um, by the time you're an adult. I think the second thing is we don't have the sort of community in most places, community and um, the neighborhood and the um, cultural um, components that actually lead to friendship typically um, in most people's lives. People are not going to a church or a synagogue as much. People are not doing that community work. So there's not that setting for it. And then a lot of the interaction now, like I look at my kids, it's all online. It's texting, it's liking and disliking things on social media or in my son's case, like, playing video games and killing people with other people simultaneously over a video game, yelling and screaming. Like they're not positive, consistent, vulnerable relationships. So we're just not, you know, modeling that and building that um, in children. We're not then in the workplace doing that. And yet we expect somehow, like there's a sense that if you don't know how to make friends, you're a loser. 
And if you know how to make friends, you're a winner. When it's actually like it is a skill set and it is a infrastructure that's necessary. Like a church or a synagogue exists in part to build community and relationships. There is an infrastructure and intentionality that builds friends out of that context, which is part of what keeps those institutions going. Um, companies need to replicate that infrastructure if they're going to have successful, sustainable cultures. So this is one of the biggest ahas I think CEOs have when I talk to them is just, it's actually your job as a CEO to figure out how to make sure friendships are built in your business. But at first glance, as, as a leader of a business, you know, I think of the importance of um, a non-work exercise and so so of a social event. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? And, and, and having those types of events versus a, you know, a, a team building exercise. I would argue that unless it's a very good one, you're going to get stronger connections, cooking dinner with each other and have a glass of wine. Yep. Well, I think it's a question of your leader in a, say a 10,000 person organization distributed around the world. How do you solve the problem? If you're 10 people that all come to the office and like can make dinner afterwards, like that's a totally different scenario. But if you're talking about a CEO of a 10,000 person, 100,000 person organizations distributed, and you need to figure out a way systemically to ensure that people have positive, consistent, vulnerable relationships, um, and that it's not just done among your sales team or just certain people, it is actually inclusive, and that black employees and white employees are actually building relationships with each other, that your employees in London are building relationships with your employees in Halifax. Um, you can't just sort of let that sort of happen by chance, because the outcome is not going to be good. Right. You got to design it versus let it go to default of nothing ever happening or the odd conversation. Yeah. And you just can't, I mean, it has to build a positive, consistent, vulnerable, like doing dinner once, like you described, like it's an opening. Um, but often that's just still superficial in terms of the interaction. Um, if you, I think the modern CEO needs to accept that psychology is how a great culture is built. Um, that's what matters. And that we are as a species, fundamentally a feeling-driven species, an emotional, um, not a rational and thinking species, and that we only really um, use that rational and thinking at times. And if you actually recognize that we're actually fundamentally more emotional than we are cognitive, you have to fundamentally build a culture around that. And I think as CEOs, we've tried to think about people as robots and try to avoid the messiness that is sort of actually how people operate. Yeah, look, I, I keep talking with this and as far as the culture workplace transforming from the transaction or robotic of, okay, Aaron, I only care about you at the workplace too. I better care about you as a human being. That used to be seen as like crossing over, none of your business. That's changed now. Oh, a thousand percent. And just with COVID, like that's just completely off the table now. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, the, the, the quote unquote war for talent now is just so um, intense and companies are just trying to figure out like how to actually scale seeing their employees as human beings, which sounds in and of itself is like inherently contradictory. Um, but I think that's where we're finding if you use psychology and technology, you can start to actually make some of that possible. Yeah, because it's funny because at first glance, it feels like, geez, that's a big hill for me as the CEO of a company to figure out how to build better people based on these people. Like it sounds very complex. It's a spider web, right? Yep. And that's sort of where it's like my dad used to say, keep it simple, stupid. Like um, find ways to connect people, help them build that conversation, build, help them build that muscle and that rhythm. Um, and that will enable that to sort of take hold. 
Um, so I think it's definitely very doable now, but it's not going to happen through an email like, hey, go make friends or, hey, we're all getting together for a conference. Um, that'll lead to a bunch of drunken silliness, but it's not going to build a positive, consistent, vulnerable relationships. But back to, you know, just back to simplicity. I mean, I always, uh, I always think as leaders, you have to go first, right? And so you have to kind of, I mean, I've, I've, I've had this happen so many times, Aaron, I go for coffee with someone and and I say, how was your weekend? And they'll say, oh, that was great. How was your weekend? I say, oh, it wasn't great. You know, my, my daughter was up and yep. I was kind of anxious because I, she wasn't um, using the washroom. And so I thought she was sick and blah, 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 blah. And I'm, I'm talking about the feelings I had around these situations. And that seems to be the first step in getting someone else to open up that they, that, that they feel a little, you know, safer. And so is that a best practice that leaders yes. kind of go first? Yeah, leaders go first, but it's also just, I mean, that is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of empathy. Both you tell a story and be like, oh, that happens to me all the time. Like, oh, I'm not a bad dad. It's actually just this happens all the time. Right. right? Um, and that's sort of the aha moments that people need to have regularly. Like, no, I'm not failing. It's just life is hard sometimes. And I think for CEOs, one of the most important things is to like create permission and say, we expect you to be building relationships. It's fine to use your work time to build relationships at work, like to create that space to talk about their own challenges challenges, which is one of the most powerful things, like here's how I've struggled in my career to build relationships and why it's been hard for me and what I've had to do to build relationships um, and to actually make that stick. And it, at times I still feel very lonely as a CEO, right? Um, right. To own things like that. Cause I think everyone's projecting like people, even in my tiny company, like they project as since I'm a founder and very visible publicly, like that I've got all my shit together and I don't. And like, when I'm actually saying, no, I'm struggling with that. They're like startled. And then suddenly like we connect as human beings. You know, it's funny. I was, we have a guy, a uh, friend of mine, Arnold, who does our, we, we provide uh, personal training. He does it through Zoom or in our office uh, twice a month for, for staff members today. And he said to me the other day, he goes, you know, I'm just shocked. You just never have water available. You just aren't organized with the water. Like I, someone like you just seems like you have everything. You're on top of everything. Everything's perfect. You can't organize the water. <laughs> yeah. And so, so look, I want to kind of end with what are some of the best and creative strategies you've seen for people to accomplish this? You know, what are some of the unique ways, like, wow, this company did this one thing. And they certainly made an impact in, in driving relationships and, and connectivity in the workplace. Yeah, I, mean, I think one thing is it's um, enabling managers to check in on it with their team. So they regularly sort of ask, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one check in say like, Ron, like how, how are your relationships? Are you, do you feel like you have positive, consistent, vulnerable relationships? Ooh, that's good. That's good because I just had a call before this and I'm always asking how you doing? What are you seeing? But not, it's never, I have never asked a relationship question. I think that's a great question. So, so let me repeat that. How are your relationships? Do you, are you having positive interactions? Are you feeling you're getting like, sorry, do some follow-up relationship questions on that. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, do you feel like you have positive, consistent relationships? You're able to be authentic. Do you feel like you have meaningful relationships at work? Do you feel like you have relationships with people of different backgrounds that like, expose you to different ways of thinking. Oh, um, I love that. So meaningful, impactful. What was the other thing you said? You said diverse. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole range, but just finding different. So you don't ask the same question every time, just sort of drilling down on it a different way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, helping to share that. I think the other piece as a manager is just sort of saying like, you know, personally, like sharing with people, like I really would love to have, you know, a connection or relationship with someone with, you know, who's done this or had this experience. I'm like, being open about your needs for relationships um, as well is something that I, I highly recommend. Um, 
And I think one of the things to practice is people don't like to bother each other and ask for help, but most people actually love being asked. Right. And just one thing I would challenge people to do is like this week, like just ask somebody for help. Um, and try it once a week at least to ask a different person for help. Um, be surprised what that does to actually build connection. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because language plays a huge, huge part, right? But like, like even as leaders delegate and they say, can you versus can you help? Like just that small pivotal language change of Aaron, can you take care of this thing versus Aaron, could you help me with this thing? Very different reaction, right? 100%. Yeah. And I've just been onboarding a couple of new people and sort of teaching them, teaching them to think differently because they're so used to just getting like orders um, yeah. to go do. And it's like, no, like we're doing this together and you're going to help me with it. Um, and we're, yeah. It's a sense of team. So yeah, those are just some you know tips. I mean, I think they're a lot more out there. And I think ultimately for a large company, I mean, it is it does require technology because it does require scaling. And you need to be able to measure and know how healthy the relationships are in your company. And I think most managers don't know whether or not the people on their team have meaningful relationships. And definitely most CEOs have no clue if that's happening in their company. 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm actually one of them. I need to fix that. So thanks for bringing that to life. Yep. What's that? We got some tips now on how to do I it. I do. Well, Aaron, look, yeah, look, this has been incredible. Um, I really have enjoyed this conversation and your time today. It's been impactful. I've got, I've got two pages of notes and I've got some work to do. I love it. I love it. Well, it was great to connect with you and hopefully see you in Halifax in the near future. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thanks for stopping in here. For more information about Aaron and his work or Imperative, please follow him on LinkedIn or go to Imperative, www.imperative.com. To learn more or purchase the Scaling Culture Masterclass online course, please go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.